Exploring the natural world, one podcast episode at a time. This is For What It's Earth. Hi all, and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa Jacobs of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment we all love and some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. This week, we are going to celebrate October, which is National Raptor Month, and we will take a look at some positive ways to help raptor conservation efforts, as well as ways to identify raptors that might be flying overhead this time of year. Now that fall is fully upon us, raptor migration is as well. Back last year, I had the opportunity to write an article about the raptor migration along the Delaware River and Atlantic Flyway, which is where I live, and ways to identify raptors Last year, I had the opportunity to write an article about the great raptor migration along the Delaware River and Atlantic Flyway where I live locally, and some ways to identify raptors as they're flying overhead for a local magazine. Now that we're getting ready to start spotting all of the wonderful migratory birds and raptors, I thought it'd be great to remind folks about the wonders of hawks, falcons, vultures, and even more with this podcast episode. So as you are out driving, hiking, and generally exploring your communities, be sure to keep an eye on the skies, especially this time of year between August and late October. For those of you along the East Coast United States, you might see a dark silhouette overhead or catch a glimpse of a pale underside as a migrating raptor scouts for food as they traverse the Atlantic flyway. Migration here usually starts in early September and continues throughout the fall. According to Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, which is a bird sanctuary and super awesome hiking destination in Pennsylvania, September boasts the peak flyby numbers with, this is, it blows my mind, absolutely blows my mind, but there are over 3,000 birds seen passing through And that's not just, oh, September's the peak time. There's 3,000 birds passing through. No, that is every day. It might peak at 3,000 birds. And they have different volunteers and community scientists out counting these amazing raptors. Yeah, it's not September anymore. Peak migration season has most likely passed, especially now that it's October. But, 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 but we can still see many raptors flying overhead as they make their way south. Maybe just not 3,000 in a day. But hey, if you see 100 in a day, that's still really cool. These October flyers can include birds like the black and turkey vultures, golden eagles, northern harriers, sharp-shinned and cooper's hawks, red-shouldered and red-tailed hawks, and merlins. Other raptors such as bald eagles, American kestrels, peregrine falcons, goshawks, they're going to be peaking at different times. Maybe they peak in September or maybe they actually peak in November. Depending on their food sources, habitat, where they're coming from, and all sorts of other variables are going to impact their migration time. These other birds 
and just all birds in general, if you're a migratory songbird or a raptor, you can be seen migrating until the weather turns really cold, like freezing cold. And if their food sources in their main area disappear. To provide some reference for those not in the East Coast United States, the Atlantic Flyway is a path on the East Coast here that birds take from nesting sites to a wintering location. There's many other flyways and I'll list some later. Where I am in Pennsylvania here, and honestly all the way up into Canada near the Arctic Circle, and then way, 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 way down at the tip of South America are part of the Atlantic Flyway. Pennsylvania, though, provides really vital watershed habitat for birds, providing both protection in the form of tree cover and food in the form of fish and carrion and small mammals along the many rivers and tributaries here. Honestly, PA is one of the best birding destinations if you are looking to go bird watching. This whole state boasts some really great parks, forests, and rivers to go watching along. But Pennsylvania is not the only cool birding destination. In other parts of the world, there are different flyways. Here in the United States, you might live along the Mississippi, the Central, or the Pacific flyway. Now, there are other flyways all over the world, too. You have the West Pacific that goes along Alaska and into Far East Asia and Australia. You have the East Atlantic Flyway, which passes through Western Europe and down through the West Coast of Africa. The Mediterranean and Black Sea Flyway occurs in Northern Africa and Eastern Europe up into the very tiny little tip of Russia. The West Asian and East African flyways pass through, I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory for many of these names, but this one is super, super, super self-explanatory. It's West Asia and East Africa. The Central Asian flyway goes all the way from the deep tundra of Northern Russia down to the Southern tip of India. Finally, you have the Australasian Flyway, which includes much of Far East Asia, down through most of Australia, and it actually overlaps with some other flyways, such as the Pacific American and West Pacific Flyway that go up into Alaska. Now, many of these flyways also overlap with each other just naturally because you might have some birds, they don't know, oh, this is the Australasian pathway. And therefore, if we are a, a Pacific American bird, we cannot even cross over into Australasian territory. No, no, no. That's not how birds work. They're going where their food sources are. And sometimes that overlaps with where other birds are going to be seen too. Which that kind of leads me into what actually drives migration. There's a myth out there that it's triggered by temperature change. So, oh, it's getting cold now. It's not summer anymore. Birds are migrating because they don't want to be chilly. That's, that's not true. Bird, birds don't care about being chilly. They have some amazing adaptations 
to help them handle the cold. So that's definitely not it. But temperature does obviously have something to do with it because yes, we are seeing that migration does happen when it gets colder. But that's not what actually triggers the start of migration. I mean, some birds don't even migrate at all. The real reason is all animals have to eat. And as the year continues, various food sources completely dry up or disappear. In the fall, birds that live way up north near the Arctic Circle and northern Canada along the Atlantic Flyway, they don't have access to food sources anymore. The rivers and the ground and the habitat freeze over and small animals think your little mammals like your minks, your stoats, your mice, little guys like that are going to be diving underground and digging little burrows and tunnels to stay warm. They're not up on the surface where raptors can catch them. Therefore, raptors need to fly south to areas where the rivers and the ground is ice free, where the mammals are still running around, where the fish are still swimming, where they have access to food. However, due to climate change, habitat is changing and raptors are needing to adapt really quickly. Temperatures overall are rising and the freezes are delayed or non-existent. The food sources for many of these raptors stick around and the birds don't need to migrate as far south to search out new food areas. The little mammals don't have to bury as deep or as soon in the season because the ground's not frozen yet. Overall, for bird watchers, this can cause some confusion, potential frustration, just like, what is happening? As there might be less birds migrating at times when they used to be. Or maybe there's just a delay in migration. Birders who were used to going out in late August may not start seeing the raptors until later and later and later when northern conditions finally do freeze over, maybe in late October to November. As these birds pass over, we get excited. I know I drive along this road that goes past and it has it's open it has a lot of trees including dead trees which is very important along this stretch of road and then there's some like fields and meadows nearby this is great habitat for raptors who will sit in the tops of these trees and kind of look out and survey their domain looking for small animals to eat yum 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 so every time i drive down this road I'm always scouting and on the lookout for, oh, there's a big bird, yay! It's really cool to see a raptor. But sometimes it can be hard to identify, oh, is that a red-tailed hawk? Is that a black vulture or a turkey vulture? Is that a sharp-shinned hawk? I don't know. But fortunately, there are several features that we can use to identify them, even if they're from far away, like up in the sky and we're way down here on the ground. First, you can try to observe their silhouette shape. Falcons, including the peregrine falcon and kestrel, are tiny little guys, so cute, 
with long wings that point down and away from their heads, making a silhouette from their wing down to their tail, back up to the top of the wing, down to the wing tip, that ultimately looks like an M. Their tails will be kind of long in comparison to the rest of their body that stick out straight behind them. If they land and are close by, you can further observe details and markings that can distinguish now, okay, we have species, this is a little falcon guy, maybe it's a peregrine falcon, or maybe it's a kestrel, and then be able to further distinguish between male and female. For example, male kestrels sport bluish, kind of gray, but almost blue wings and heads. Both males and females will have a black stripe that goes down the eye, kind of like a tear. You have accipiters, which are hawks, and they include birds like the sharpshinned and cooper's hawk. And they have round wings and notched tails, like a little tiny V. Budios, which include red tail hawk, red shoulder hawk, and eagles, can be identified by their very long, broad wings and rounded tails. They don't have that notch. These round-tailed birds also tend to be on the larger side. So if you're torn in identification, if the bird you see seems rather large in comparison, it's probably in the bootio category. And keep in mind, things like your red-tailed hawks, your bald eagles, these are big, big birds especially when in comparison to a tiny little falcon or a kestrel. Another identifying trait is the feather coloration on their bellies. If you're trying to distinguish between a red-tailed and a red-shoulder hawk, this can be really, really important to look at. You're going to want to look for a dark band of feathers that runs across the chest. These two birds, especially round-tailed hawks, can be hard to tell apart until they take off and you can see their bellies. Like if they're just sitting on a telephone pole or a dead tree snag, their backs and their faces might look very, very similar to one another. Now, if the bird has a rust colored or like cinnamon colored belly, it's the red shouldered hawk. While a whitish or creamy belly with that dark band of brown running across the chest, this is a red-tailed hawk. You can also take a look at where the birds are flying. Are they circling kind of around the treetops? That might be your red-tailed hawk. Or are there blackbirds flying way, way, way up high, like super up high? If this bird is completely black, it could be a black vulture. Or unless it has a pinkish bald head, it's probably a turkey vulture instead. Or if it has that completely black body with a white head and white tail feathers, it might be a bald eagle instead. Now, to make things way more complicated, there could be birds at different life stages. This bald eagle, for example, will only get its white head when it's about five to six years old. The black bird that you could be seeing and you're like, oh, it's probably a turkey vulture and I can't see its head or it's a black vulture and it's small bits of silver on the undersides of the wings. I'm not seeing really well or it's not shining in the light. So it's probably a vulture. Well, 
it might just be a juvenile bald eagle. Honestly, to help you avoid getting confused like that, one of the best pieces of advice is just get a pair of binoculars. You can keep a pair in your car with you, pull off to the side of the road, take a look. Or if you're going out hiking or walking your dog, keep a pair of binoculars with you if you really want to narrow down the identity of a mystery bird. You'll be able to see the beak shape better, the different feathers along the belly and the tail, and any patterns that the bird might have. Now, if you're trying to practice your bird ID skills, another great investment, not just in binoculars, but could be in a field guide. It's no help to you if you can see the bird really quickly, like, oh, you put your binoculars up and wow, yeah, that's, that's cool, you can see the bird but you don't know what, what that bird is. It's not gonna help you. My personal favorites are Sibley and Peterson field guides here for East Coast, North America. However, there's many great ones out there. Do a bit of research and find one that works with your locality and personal preference in the style of the book. Sometimes field guides are in black and white, which can make identifying a raptor by color way beyond challenging. Sometimes the field guides are brief and don't go into a ton of detail, expecting that you might already have some background knowledge. That may be the case for you and you don't need to spend 20 minutes reading through a little description when you're just trying to find, oh, it has this coloration, cool, now I know what bird it is. Choose one that works for you and take your binoculars out on a hike. You can also hone your identification skills for North American raptors with the National Audubon Society's website. They actually have this cool little raptor quiz where it's just the silhouette of these raptors as if they're flying up high in the sky and you're looking up at them. And it gives you a list, like a fill in the blank sort of thing of, hey, here's this word bank, which bird is which? And I'll include that link in the podcast description for those who want to see how well they do. If you only get one right, who cares? It's cool to still be able to start making those observations and learning more and more about the birds in your area. Now that you can hopefully identify some more raptors or at least be set up with things that you might need to be able to identify them, and hopefully this time of year, you'll be seeing some flying overhead in your communities. Hopefully the goal is that you'll appreciate them further now that you know more about them. And of course, once you appreciate them, you'll be more driven to care for them and to protect them. Unfortunately, since the 1980s, raptor populations have decreased by roughly 50%, and this is worldwide. This is tragic, not just because this means we're losing some amazing biodiversity, but because raptors also play a very important role in the ecosystem. They act as population managers for little things, maintaining populations of fish, small mammals, and more. Some of them also feed on carrion and act as decomposers or janitors of the natural world. As more raptors face extinction due to climate change, habitat loss, and death due to biological magnification, our entire ecosystems could be thrown way out of whack. 
Fortunately, though, I'm not going to leave you on that sort of doom and gloom. That's that's sad. That's tragic. Got to give you hope, right? And there is hope. It's not just something I'm making up to oh, make you feel better. But there is actual hope. And there are many ways that you can take action in your own homes and communities to protect these important members of the bird world. For starters, prevent poisoning and biological magnification by completely stopping any use of chemical pesticides. Believe me, I get it. Having mice or squirrels in the walls of your home can be a no good situation. I've had both, including groundhogs. I get it. My home is this wildlife haven where I can't even see the wildlife unless they chew through my ceiling and poke their little heads down and look at me or unless they leave little mouse turds in my kitchen cabinets. Like, eh, that's not the way that I want to experience wildlife. So I get it. However, let's say you put out poison, hoping to kill the stuff that's in your walls, get rid of them from chewing on any potential wires, things like that. If one of them eats a little bit of poison, typically for the most part, they'll go outside. They want to leave their home to die. As they do so, they're gonna go outside and kaput. They fall over dead and a raptor is like, ooh, look at that easy to catch a meal. Either it's almost on its way out, it's kind of wandering slowly, or it's already dead and Yummy, super easy to catch. And they're gonna snack on it, delicious. Now the poison in that animal's body is now also gonna be in the raptor. And after a raptor catches more and more of potential poisoned prey, think you poison one, your neighbor poisons another one. This chemical poison is gonna build up or magnify in the bird, hence the name biological magnification. Many raptors die from accidental poisoning. And usually the people who are trying to get rid of the mice and the squirrels or whatever, don't want to be hurting bird populations and do without knowing. Instead of the poison, you can use live traps to remove unwanted critters from the home. So by putting out little traps, maybe it has some peanuts in it or something for a mouse or a squirrel to eat, and then you either release them, keep in mind you gotta release them really far away, otherwise they'll be able to figure out how to get back. You're now keeping the populations of mammals safe because squirrels, mice, groundhogs, they all have a part to play in the ecosystem too. So you're keeping them alive, it's a little more humane, and you're also protecting bird populations. Now, along the line of caring for raptors by also caring for their food source, you can avoid throwing compostable food out the window when you're driving. Many people think it's fine. After all this apple core, banana peel, it's gonna biodegrade really quickly in the dirt on the side of the road. And in fact, many little critters are gonna come and munch on the remnants, which provides them with a cool, easy, quick food resource. Well, let's think a little bit beyond that. As more of these little critters, these little animals flock to your discarded food, raptors are gonna see it and be like, oh, a little congregation of snacks. And because the food's on the side of the road, the chance of a raptor being hit by a car dramatically increases. And this is one of the ways that these raptors have their populations declining. 
keep a little bag. I have this bag that's like tied to the back of my chair and I can just toss stuff in there and empty it out when I need to, putting it in the compost when I get home. You can also keep raptors safe by avoiding too much string usage. Now, wh what does that even mean? Well, excess string in any habitat can cause entanglement and choking, obviously not good for a bird. Strings in the habitat can include, think of like discarded fishing line near rivers and waterways. Sports nets like a soccer or football net out in the backyard left out overnight. This isn't gonna be helpful to nocturnal owls and other raptors that get tangled up in this net as they're flying around looking for food. It could also be strings from released helium balloons. These are all things that make significant impacts on populations. Instead, be sure that you pick up all discarded fishing line. If you're gonna be celebrating and you want balloons, think of other ways to celebrate. Maybe rice confetti or petals can work instead of releasing balloons. And if you have a soccer net, lacrosse net, whatever it is, you can, when you're done, simply move them out of the way from flyby areas. Another really easy way to support bird populations is to make sure that tree work on your property and in your community are done at a time when birds are not nesting. Obviously, migration period is a high flyby rate. So waiting until early winter after the fall migration, but before nesting season starts up in late winter, think like February, that's gonna be really helpful to keeping birds safe. Even dead trees can be really important habitat. As long as these dead trees are safely away from buildings or where people play or hang out, they can be perfect wildlife snags. Some birds such as barn owls, screech owls, and kestrels require cavities. They don't make nests on their own. So having these natural made holes becomes their nest and they rely on these holes. Or if you have nest boxes to put up, that could be another great way to keep these birds safe. So for what it's earth, each person who falls in love with raptors and can take a part in creating safe habitats and migratory pathways for them is playing a huge role in conserving these incredible species and members of the ecosystems that we're a part of. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please support, review, and continue to follow along for more wonderful ecosystem information. For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more eco tips and conservation ideas, check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and at YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next time on For What It's Earth.